Greetings and welcome to a special edition of the Elm City Lit Fest podcast. Elm City Lit Fest is a celebration of literature, literary arts, and literary artists of the African diaspora. This evening, we have partnered with, well, we're with one of our partners, People Get Ready Books, and we're excited to be with um, Dolores Williams and Lauren Anderson, the co-owners of People Get Ready Books. Hello, ladies. As well as, um, well, we're gonna give a shout out to Just Us Books, Cheryl and Wade Hudson, who have been publishing black books for a very long time. <laughs> we're so grateful for them. And tonight we are featuring Marilyn Nelson. Marilyn Nelson, is an author, translator of more than 20 books and chapbooks for adults and children. And she's critically acclaimed and a former poet laureate of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And welcome, Marilyn. We're celebrating Marilyn's new book. We got our balloons. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Oh, <laughs> let's see how big you can get it. <laughs> and the new book is called Papa's Free Day Party. Papa's Free Day Party. And, and today, of all days, we need to have a celebration of a book like this. There is history in this book, and we have history made today. I would be remiss if we did not recognize the verdict and the and the in the, in the George Floyd case in Minneapolis. Um, we, as we celebrate, we, as we, re, we are relieved, we cannot sleep on it. Yeah. <laughs> we just cannot sleep on it. So with that said, we're here for the celebration of the book. Yay. <laughs> and Marilyn, as an author, Marilyn's books are so your poetry and our stories in and of themselves. And um, like, it's, it's so heartwarming. Like po poetry is song to me. Um, so I'm gonna hand it over to Lauren and, and, and or D <laughs> to talk a little bit about well, yeah. over here. I'll jump in to just say it is like such an honor and a delight to be here with uh, with Ife of Elm City Lit Fest, with Marilyn, who um, we have loved and appreciated for so long, and with Just Us Books. Um, people used to ask me if it was cool. To, I lived in Los Angeles for a while, and people would say it must be amazing to have lived in a city where you like bump into, you can see famous people out and about. Um, and I, I always say like New Haven's pretty great for that, right? Like I, I managed to meet uh, Michelle Alexander on the, <laughs> on the, um, on the walk out in front of Atticus. I ran into Dwayne Betts. Um, in a restaurant here in New Haven. And probably the most wonderful literary meeting was meeting um, Marilyn, whose work I've known for so long. And what was really special about it is that she was here um, at People Get Ready. We have only been around for about um, uh, just now, a little bit over really a year. And uh, it was such a delight to be able to lean over and say, I, I know you, you're Marilyn Nelson. <laughs> And it's um, amazing to think that here we are um, celebrating another beautiful uh, contribution from Marilyn, a children's book. Um, Marilyn has written so many amazing things, uh, A Wreath for Emmett Till, Carver, A Life in Poems, uh, The Home Place. Um, and now we have another, uh, Labaya's Quiet Roar, which is an, another recent children's book. And so it's just really special to have the opportunity um, to talk with her tonight about Papa's Free Day um, Party, which is based on a piece of her own um, family history. And so just to maybe get us started in conversation, Marilyn, it would be wonderful to just hear a little bit from you about um, sort of the life story of this book, like how it came into being and um, why you decided to make, um, to make it a story for children, I guess, in particular. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Let me first of all say thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Dolores. Um, and thank you, Ife, for introducing me to People Get Ready Bookstore. You are the reason I found out about them. And it was a really great gift to my life. Mm -hmm. So I, I thank you for that. Um, and I, I also would shout out to the Hudsons of Just Us Books have enabled me to make this long time dream come true. This book is something I've been wanting to write and trying to write. Gosh, I don't know when it started, but I know, actually, one of my cousins uh, in the winter sent me a copy of a typescript of uh, an attempt to write this story. I sent it to him in the 60s, I think. Um, and it was a story I wanted to write because I I think it's it's just a terrific story, as so many family stories are. I love family histories. And this is one which I had inherited in little pieces. I only, my mother never sat down and said, I'm gonna now tell you the story of my father's life and he was born at this time and this happened. It always came out in passing like, oh, that reminds me of one time Papa said so-and-so. So I had these little pieces of story. One of them was about how the home place was burned down by night riders when when my mother's father was a little boy and he was told to go north and one of them was about how one time when my mother was a young girl she wanted to make a pie for her father but there was no sugar in the house so she sweetened the pie with blackstrap molasses. And she said it was just inedible, but he ate it and said it was delicious. And that for her was an example of what a wonderful father he was. And then there were stories about the horse prince. And there were stories about my grandmother um, having to leave her children at home on the farm with her husband when she went off to teach school. And so I had these pieces and I kept trying to fit them together and it just never worked. And I met Cheryl Willis Hudson, who's one of the founders of Just Us Books and asked her if she would help me put this story together. And she took it and looked at it with an editor, editorial eye and a creative eye and said, well, I think first of all, you should move this to here and move that over there and drop that part. And, and it suddenly came into focus. I am, I'm so grateful to her for that. So that's the origin of the story and uh, the one piece that I wasn't able to fit in, which I always thought was kind of romantic ending. My grandfather, oh, I maybe should talk about the story first before I talk about the missing piece. <laughs> I was gonna say, it might, it might be nice. I mean, I don't know how much of it you want to sort of give away because I think everybody should get the physical book and and have it and hold it and add it to their collection whether that's a illustrations it's a whole <laughs> or yeah. a classroom co collection I mean, as somebody who's a former teacher i just can't help but think about how amazing a book like this would be to to actually teach in a classroom mm -hmm. setting um and to ha of course do that really thoughtfully so yeah i I, mean, I wonder if you can just sort of share it with us and with those fo folks who are listening and haven't yet seen it 
um, sort of what the setup of the story is and, and who the main focal points of the story are. Um, well, that, I uh, this afternoon picked out a couple of double page layouts to read. Perfect. Um, that kind of bring people into the story and that way I can't do screen sharing. I don't know how to do that, but <laughs> I can show the illustration and then read the the text that goes with it. I don't know. Yeah, Marilyn, also one of us could hold, I could hold it up. Great. Actually, and, um, and then maybe we could end up on a split screen. That would be and great. And if you just let me know which page, I can turn to that one and you it's can read the page with the horseman, the night rider, and the house on fire. Ah, okay. I don't know if we can, if, well, we'll see. Okay, so um, the story begins with um, the family on in, in their home in Oklahoma and a little girl, my mother asked her father um, wh what his birthday was and he says he doesn't know. And then he has to go back into his history to make her understand. And this is the, the where he, essentially where he starts with his history. Uh, he starts by saying that his father ran away from slavery and served the North during the, uh, the Civil War. And when he came back, he had a little bit of money and bought a little bit of land and started farming and married and started farming and had two little boys. One night when I was five or six, horses galloped up to our house and men wearing white hoods and carrying torches and rifles set our house, set fire to our home. I heard Pa scream. Ma screamed, run, John, run. Go north, boy, run, run. It was dark. I was shaking with fear, but I ran. I slowed down just long enough to look up and find the North Star, and that's the direction I headed. Sometimes I stopped to drink from a creek. I stopped to sleep when it was daylight. But as soon as it got dark, I looked at the sky and started running again. And then I read the next, the next page layout, which is a picture of of a little boy in a garden with a man's hand on his shoulder. Some days and nights later, I was eating a carrot in a garden when a big white hand landed on my shoulder. I was so tired and hungry and scared that I fell down in a faint. The man picked me up and carried me into his house. And that is the beginning of the sea change in this boy's life because there was no internet, there were no telephone books. Their boy was six years old. He didn't even know his last name. Yeah. Um, when, he, when this man asked the names of his parents, he says their names were Ma and Pa. And, um, so this man, as the book says, the man picked me up and carried me into his house. And so the one of the first things I knew about my grandfather was that story. The, mm. the family house was burned down and that he was told to go north and that he was taken in by this white couple, the Bryants and um, raised by them. He spent the rest of his childhood and youth being raised beside this white couple's son, whose name was Cullen. And um, they <clears throat> kind of as brothers. And one interesting thing, uh, I, I do wanna go back to read another page, but one interesting thing, I remembered my mother saying that he was eating a carrot in a garden when Mr. Bryant 
found him. However, sh shortly before this book was published, I decided to try to find the Bryant family. I contacted, they live in Missouri. This happened in Missouri. I contacted the Missouri State Historical Society and told them the story. And I was looking from a, for a family in this town with the last name of Bryant. And they found the family and gave me their names. And uh, they, they sent me a, <clears throat> an obituary uh, for someone in the family. And the obituary listed the children's names and the towns they lived in. So I wrote to them. And as soon as they heard from me, they sent me a copy of a letter my uncle, my mother's brother, had written to their father, mm. telling him the the story of his. Uh, my uncle was telling the story of his father's life, and he says in his letter that his father always said that he got to the banks of the Mississippi River, five or six years old, got to the banks of the Mississippi River and was standing there crying. And this white man said, where are your parents? What are your parents' name? And he couldn't say. And he told them that it, about the fire. And this man said, why don't you come home with me? I have a boy your age and you can be playmates. So if I had known that part of the story, I would have I would have told it differently. I I had remembered it differently. So, I, yes, Marilyn, sorry to interrupt you, but I just I have to say you remind me so much of my father. You're so much more than a um, poet and a writer. You're you're a genealogist. You're a historian, really, and when you were talking about getting pieces of the story from your mother, it just so reminded me of the Toni Morrison quote, the pieces I am. You're gathering all these pieces and putting them together in the right order, you know? And I'm really grateful for the fact that you are sharing this story. I know that's already been said, but this is the kind of story that could just stay in a family. And instead of just let, allowing it to just stay in the family, you've allowed the public, you've allowed us into your family by sharing this story. And it's just such, it's such an important piece of history to share. And for me personally, I have to say it was very triggering to read it. Um, just because I think I'm like an empath, I'm very sensitive to energy. And the whole time I was thinking about this little boy, you know, you're, you, this is your grandfather, but your mm -hmm. grandfather was a child at some point. Mm -hmm. And we don't always think of our elders that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just so important. Just when you when you read that first page with the with the man on the horse or this being on a horse, if you want to call it a man, you can, mm -hmm. but that wouldn't be my preference. The 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 little boy, Papa, little Papa, little John. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's a ghost. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even think in his child mind that this is a, something a human mm -hmm. would be doing. Mm -hmm. And that to me is just so powerful. It kind of like the story really drew me in, in a way that not many stories necessarily do. Um, and so I just felt like the whole time I felt a sense of just, real sadness for him because as a kid, it was really hard for me to say goodbye. I did not like goodbyes at all. Mm -hmm. And your grand and Papa, your grandfather, he had to say a lot of really abrupt goodbyes, mm -hmm. you know? And, and what does that do to the spirit of a child, you know? And, and the fact that he was able to grow up and still have love and still create create a legacy of love, which, which then brought us you is just so amazing to me. 
And I, I am curious about how you felt about hearing this story for the first time. Like, how did it feel to you? Because to me, I was just like, how does a little boy run in the night following a star and, and survive? But you know, this is, this is our history. The, uh, I don't remember how I felt because I don't have any memory of the first time I heard the story. And it probably, you know, it came to me again in, in little pieces, in, in passing. Um, so it's not as if my mother sat down and said, I'm going to tell you this, this big story. Um, but this, this is so much African-American history. And really, it's so much world history being separated from our parents, from our elders, out of necessity, having to pack. Well, look at these people who are headed to North America right now because things are going crazy in Honduras or El Salvador and they there's no place for them to be. What about, I'm sorry, people in Syria? I mean, I'm working now on a witness stones project for old Lyme, and we're talking about people who were enslaved in old Lyme, connecticut 200 300 years ago and you know it's happening there is so much trauma in the world that children are living with and I, I started to say, this is African-American history. Our history is so full of trauma, but it's not just our history. There are, there are histories everywhere you, you look that are so traumatizing, it makes you wonder how, how people go on. Um, and they do. And for most, sometimes the trauma kills the love. But so, sometimes I think more often that love is stronger than the trauma, that love survives, that there's always some little spark of it that's still, still there flickering and it only needs to be poetic metaphor, breathed on, like when you're starting a fire with two pieces of rock, you 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 breathe on the spark and it and it catches fire. And that's so much I'm 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 grateful for that for the grace for the humanity that your that Papa encountered along his journey, mm -hmm. which really, truly did bring us you mm -hmm. and brought you, you know, into the world of your family and that legacy, the, the love that's there. But I am grateful for, for that grace and that humanity that mm -hmm. he encountered because it's just, it, it, it changed the trajectory of his life at that moment. Absolutely. And that was powerful. Not just in that moment, but but yes, for the, for the the rest of his life, the the um, the part I wasn't able to put in the story is that um, my my grandfather had to leave the town he grew up in. He he grew up in this little town in Missouri, and he got into a, a disagreement, let's say, with some visiting stranger rednecks and he was operating a ferry boat and he threw them overboard and he went back to his family the bryants and told them what had happened and they put him on a train with some farm animals and some money and he went west and he wound up in Boley, oklahoma where his life was completely different but the piece i wasn't able to get in the story is that my mother said that he he was always talking about Cull, the boy he grew up with, all of their adventures, funny things they had done together, and 
one of the stories in this book is about uh, um, John and Cull. And he was always talking about Cull. And one evening, his wife said, you're always talking about Cull. You've never written him a letter. Why don't you sit down and write him a letter and find out how he's doing? And so he did this and mailed the letter. And some time later, he received a, re a return letter from Cull's wife who said, Cull talked about you all the time and want you to know that he loved you. Really, you were, you were brothers and your letter just missed him. He got sick and died suddenly. And he died like two or three days before your letter arrived. He would have loved to hear from you, to, and, but it was too late. And, and that's a piece of the story for me too, that the, <clears throat> the, the thing, the small thing that that man did by taking home this little boy became a really lifelong friendship between the two little boys who grew up together. And I've, I've just always, for me, the fact that the letter arrived too late reminded me of sort of 1940s black and white romance, you know, I'll meet you at the top of the Eiffel Tower and the letter gets lost and it never arrives and they never see each other again. So that's always been that way for me. And one of the things I want to mention as well is, um, and uh, some of the comments that are coming up in the in the Facebook are that it's a triumphant story and of of the resilience of of black people in in America okay. and and the humanity that we 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 get or we we serve and. It's such an irony for today, what is happening now. And, and like you said, like there's children at the border, they're dependent on someone's humanity yes, to yes. get them yes. across to be safe yes. Yes. and the um, resilience. So they're in one of the things about that, why I felt to create the Elm City Lit Fest is because our stories need to be heard, need to be told. Absolutely. So that everyone, everyone can be educated on the evolution of African-Americans in this country. There probably were so many children in so many situations and so many families that have had ran to the north or the west mm -hmm. for to be safe people had to be separated from their children um and i would i would love to hear another page from the book and 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 later on some of your other poetry okay. as well because you are a poet laureate Marilyn, and <laughs> your books are so touching and we want to we appreciate just us books for bringing it just to just us. We got just us and people get ready <laughs> all together. And I hope one day to have um, have Cheryl and Wade and, and Katura on the Elm City Lit Fest so we can talk about their part, their part in promoting and celebrating our stories. But let's hear a little bit more from the book. Okay. The, 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 the book after he's grown and and gets on that train he winds up in this extraordinary town and this part of the story is very much uh, the center of my mother's life and her pride she was so proud of being born and raised in Bowley, Oklahoma. It was it was the first thing she said when she met people. Oh, somehow she worked it around to Bowley, Oklahoma. And because of that, we met a lot of people who were from Bowley 
or from other black towns in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Um, we lived in California for part of my youth, and there are a lot of Westerners out in in California who left the, the, during the Depression, during the uh, Dust Bowl. Okay, so here's, I'll go back to the story. My train went west toward the new state of Oklahoma. There was a town in Oklahoma called Boley that I had heard things about that I could hardly believe. I had heard that Boley was a town of people who looked like me, people who were born in bondage or like I was born to people who had been freed. In Boley, they owned all the farms and businesses in and around town. When I got to Boley, I spent an hour walking up and down Pecan Street, just looking at the men and women of this miraculous free black town. Within a few days, I bought a piece of land to farm. I built a house. Then, for the first time in my life, I plowed my own land, grew my own crops, and slept under my own roof at night. I milked my cow every morning. And um, the rest of the story is this family in Boley trying to figure out a way to give their father a birthday party, even though he doesn't know the day of his birth. Um, but as I, as I said, um, this, the fact that this family was in Boley was the most part, uh, important part uh, of my mother's life, I believe. And it's um, something that's followed all of my siblings and my, my cousins, um, who are the sons, they're all boys, the sons of my uncle. But I've, I've written a lot of poems about Boley. That's why I that maybe instead of going back and reading more <laughs> of this story, I could read a couple of poems to give you. You would love that. You, Boley. So it gives you a sense of what this, this is really a fabulous town. Um, this is a book I wrote for my mother. It's called The Home Place. That's her picture on the cover. Um, and it's about her family history. And not too many of the poems in this book are about Bowley because uh, it it's about the earlier family history before they got to Bowley. But I'll read two poems that give you a sense of um, what Bowley was like. The one time I know of that Bowley appeared in the New York Times was when the gang, uh, the sort of uh, like Bonnie and Clyde gangsters, the pretty boy Floyd gang was riding around the West and Midwest robbing banks. And they went to Bowley to rob the first, the only completely incorporated, completely licensed and insured Black-owned, Black-operated bank. They tried to rob the Bowley Farmers and <laughs> Merchants Bank. Uh, 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 exactly. You do not rob our bank. They stood up to this gang and shot a couple of them. It was in the New York Times. Nobody had ever done that before. Okay. I love that you put that in the book. That is one of my favorite parts of the book that you put the actual historical account. Yeah. It's beautiful. I didn't know anything about Boley. I knew Tulsa had been burned down. I didn't know that there was a Boley that thrived. 
And yes, throw, that's so important. Yes. Yes, Dolores, it's um it's um it's a triumph. This is a story that starts with trauma, but it turns and ends with triumph. And I And Papa knows what it means to be free. Exactly, exactly. He knows what freedom means. In the beginning, he thought he didn't know what freedom meant. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This, these are two poems that center on my grandmother. Her name was Ray. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I need to say anything more. She, her name was Ray. She had grown up in a very uh, educated, well-educated family in Kentucky, not not with money, but with education. One of my cousins said we had intellectual property. Um, so uh, she's married this farmer and moved to this town in Oklahoma. This is called High and Haughty. Ray, almost a spinster, gave up her dreams of princes to marry a widowed farmer she'd refused as a proud, lanky girl. He was intelligent, kind, and who would be good enough? On her husband's farm near Boley, Oklahoma, she was surprised by love, like a rainbow, rainbow umbrella unfolding over their heads. New people arrived every week, having heard of an all-black town from an incredulous mouth or a Negro newspaper, having heard of her husband. See that big tree? If you talk to the man that lives there, he'll loan you enough to get by, maybe lend you a mule. They weren't rich, but John would give away the drawers on his behind if Ray didn't stop him. John, think of the children. She loved John not because he'd made her his wife and the mother of two when she was well past 30. She loved John because early one July evening, after stopping his car in the road, wading through a peanut field, taking off his hat and handkerchiefing his forehead, a white man called toward the house, Mr. Mitchell, and Ray became at long last a queen. That was Bowley, that pride, that mister. <laughs> I'm read one one other one that's kind of related to the bank robbery story, but this is a different incident. It's called Armed Men. Ray teaches at the Bowley Baptist School, a little too far away to travel safely there and back by buggy every day. Some years, she lets the children stay on the farm with their doting father. But this year, they're towing the line at school, although keeping them here is a bother. She has to watch them all the time. Bowley's a Negro town, and sometimes carloads of white men drive through, looking around. Today, for instance, as she'd held silk yard goods to her cheek and smiled at the extravagance, she'd heard the screen door creak and a young fair-haired white man had stalked in. His dismissing eyes had registered Mr. Oliver's store, first contemptuous, then surprised. Mr. Oliver said, good morning, sir. One moment, please. Miss Ray, you look Easter fine this morning. Can I cut that silk today? The white man spat a bad name. Mr. Oliver prepared to fight. The white man promised to bring some friends and shoot up the town tonight. And now Ray's children 
expect her to let them go out and run through the twilit streets of Boley, where each window holds a loaded gun. So that's Boley. And I, before I stop talking about Boley, have to tell you that Boley has had a rodeo every year on Memorial Day weekend for something like 125 years. The first time they didn't have one was last year because of COVID. I have heard that they're planning to bring it back this year. I'd have to check. We went to this rodeo, my family and I, a couple of years ago. It was one of the high points of my life. It was so wonderful. And one of I, I keep writing about Boley. One of the most recent things I've written is about the Boley Rodeo. Okay, enough of I just want to say too, not just it don't Boley, but throughout <laughs> this, throughout the Midwest and the South, because people had to go and leave. Very well, throughout they had to leave the South and they were going West. There's so many places that were Negro towns that were mm -hmm. prospering. Mm -hmm. Now, the irony of that is we were segregated. We were mm -hmm. doing well on our own. You didn't want us to be with you, but you wanted our money. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it's a, oh, it's enraging to know, but there are so many towns that were thriving and people were self-sufficient and doing so well throughout Oklahoma, throughout um, other, in other places. Out there were several in Kansas. In I Kansas. Think, I think most of them were in Kansas and Oklahoma. Yeah. Well, Let's I would love to an all black town. Sorry. Oh no no my I'm sorry. <laughs> I I would love to see you get the keys to that city if you don't already have them. <laughs> so I'm speaking that into existence. Thank you from from your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> so on your um Oh, I also would be remiss. Oh, we have to mention the illustrator Oh, yes. Wade Anthony Still. Oh, my goodness. The illustrations are beautiful. Like, some of them you just want a portrait of. <laughs> so, in, in your process of, um, it, after you writ, wrote the book, was there, did, did, he just took the story and wrote them? Or did you see the, the pictures? How did that work? I I uh, saw them, he did sort of drafts, and um, I, I was allowed to make suggestions, and he was gracious enough to uh, accept some of my suggestions. I can't remember, I can't remember now. I can't remember now what what were what things I suggested. I think there were things about hairstyles, uh, for, for example, on the on the family, and um, I sent him a picture of the of a ferry a river ferry boat, so he could visualize that. Um, the one that is completely his is the the. Night Rider, this hooded Night Rider on a horse, uh, holding this flaming torch. That's a really powerful illustration, and he did it all in white scale. So in the background, there it's at night. In the background, there's a house that's in sort of naturalistic colors, and it's it's burning, and there are orange flames. But the horseman looks like a horseman out of uh, 
the headless horseman or what is that story that poem mm -hmm. it's all white it looks like a ghost it's and and the hood on his head looks kind of medieval it's really a very scary picture um but the the family pictures are are very warm-hearted warm i'm looking at it now the the family pictures are really warm-hearted and i love what um what Just Us books did with this kind of an imaginary newspaper. At the end, there is this afterword with um, a picture. It, it looks like uh, maybe it could be a bully newspaper. There's a picture of my grandfather that must have been taken in about, I don't know, 1924. There's a picture of my mother and her brother looking very suspiciously at the photographer. <laughs> I, every time I look at this picture, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. See yeah. The, their I was wondering if they got in trouble before that photo or like what the story was. I think it must have been a white itinerant photographer. I wonder. around and that they were looking at him in this strange, suspicious way because he was probably, let's see white people. And if they saw white people, they're not going to smile at them. They don't trust them. That's what I see in this picture. They, they look so suspicious. And I've, I've always loved the picture. And then um, also <laughs> on this page uh, uh, under my, the picture of my grandfather is a picture that the Bryant family sent me of their grandfather, Cullen, who was, they, they, were, they were the two boys who grew up together. So there they are together on this page. And if they, if they were as close as I have heard they were, then I think this pleases them. Um, to be together mm -hmm. in this book. And oh, there's a picture of Pecan Street. <laughs> it's, a, it's a truly, it's a book that that appreciates history, that allows to history that intends to be a true historical document, even though the story isn't 100% historical. It's, it's written with respect for history. It is very respectful and there's a shout. And, and also because of this page is so key because there were two, Amer there was a segregated America. There was a black America and there was a white America. Mm -hmm. And we had our own newspapers to, to, to distribute our own news through each other. And there were there are thriving black newspapers. We're we're fortunate in New Haven to have one of the few black newspapers left in um in the country, the inner city news. Shout out to Babs. She's watching us also on, on Facebook today. But it's like there's so much, like you said, it's it's an account of a his, of history that can be so many lessons. And so many things can be broken down in this for, for generations. And it is such a gem, Papa's free day party. I do. And free is like, okay, the, I, I wanna, I'm sorry, Lauren. I wanna, the title, how did you come to select the title? Um, for in my mind, every from the very beginning, it was called Free Day Pie. Uh, and um, it was putting our heads together. Uh, as I said, Cheryl Hudson was, in, not, I wanna say more than instrumental, uh, essential in the reimagining of the story to turn it into something that was whole. And her sense of it was that um, the original title didn't say enough 
didn't give enough information. Um, so we saved free day. We put Papa in so that it uh, presents the family background. And um, it was always about a party. I just hadn't thought of it as being as that being in the title. So it was just an acknowledgement of what the story actually turned out to what it was. Yeah. I was just going to say quickly, I've lost a light, so forgive the darkness, but um, somebody had asked mm -hmm. comments about, about signed copies. And I do, I do want to say that, you know, Marilyn was kind enough to sign some. And I think this conversation is such a testament to the idea that children's books, like we don't take them seriously at our, at really at our peril and our loss, because, you know, even though a book that's a book, you know, for children is really for all of us. And, and it can be an incredibly important like vehicle just for generating and eliciting um, conversation. And I'm just so grateful, Marilyn, that you that you put the story in this form and with the historical content all together in this beautiful uh, package with, with the help of your shepherd, Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> and um and you know the the illustrator Wayne Wayne Anthony still so um I know we're we're coming up on an hour I don't know Marilyn if you have a a poem that you'd like to share um as a way of closing us out um somehow um it is you know it is poetry month <laughs> and it is this incredibly um meaningful day on multiple levels and it it Oh, it looks like I love it. Yeah. Was, yes, he's tired of waiting. <laughs> that was even better. <laughs> we just got a we just got a cameo appearance from the What's his name? I know. Yeah. Him. His name is Leoff. I I I don't know that I have a I have said that I've, I've been working on these poems for the Witness Stones project. Um, this is a project in which um, several towns on the, I think they're all on the shore, um, are, are saying the names of uh, people who were enslaved within their perimeters in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, um, and I've been working with um, three other African-American women poets who live in Connecticut, um, Antoinette Bell and Rhonda Ward and Kate Russian. Each of us is writing about three people who were enslaved in um, in Old Lyme, and we're working with a really wonderful historian, Carolyn Wakeman, who is really giving us so much information. Just really wonderful. Um, this is not a joyful poem. It's a sad poem. And I feel like with the with the jury's decision today that I should be offering up something that expresses our communal joy. It's history has been made, truly mm -hmm. history has been made here uh, in this country today. But um, I only have this. This is this is a. A story about a woman named Temperance who was called a mulatto. She was half Native American. She was half Narragansett and half African. She was born probably in 1720, something like that. And she fell in love with this African man and they wanted to marry. And 
his master, I think they must have tricked her. In any case, there's a document she signed an X on in which she says she's agreeing to sell herself into slavery for the rest of her life and to sell any children she may have for the rest of their lives. I think it was a trick. She was clearly not literate because she signed X. And then our historian found another document in which five years after she signed, okay, she signed this X. A few days after that, she was married. There's a church record of the marriage. Five years later, there is a court case in which she tried to bring a lawsuit against the man who was her master. She was suing him for wages. She apparently believed that she was working for him for money and that he was going to pay her. Turned out she couldn't sue him because she was female. Her husband would have had to make the lawsuit, but her husband was enslaved. So there she was in, in slavery for the rest of her life. Five years later, I can only imagine what it must have been like for her to be living in the house of this man who had tricked her into selling her freedom and kept the truth from her for five years. I'm sure she must have, it must have been a difficult time for her. And she must not have hidden her rage. She had four children during this time. And that's where this poem picks up. She's four children. She's, she's married to the love of her life. And they have been serving together in this household for 10 years. This is called sorrow food. And it starts with a quote from a South African writer, Bessie Head. I eat only sorrow food now. So this is in the voice of temperance. Abaya helps me keep house. Zachary and Jordan help their daddy with the outside work, weeding, feeding the chickens. Our children are smart, well-mannered and obedient with sweet smiles and mostly clean fingernails. Oxford and I are proud and heartbroken. Our miracles surrendered to this world. Our children forced to live on sorrow food. Should I have bowed and said master with gentle eyes? Should I never have glared into his face? We've shared this household like a family of wolverines and white-tailed deer, the ferocious and the ever-eaten. Manto is generous. Though the great wheel sometimes seems to wobble, Manto is good. But must we serve forever, hiding rage? Ten years. Four babies born upstairs, the moons of making home for our joined families of cooking, cleaning, washing, nursing the sick, of scrubbing booties for nine babies in all. How shall I look in the face of Richard Lord, who just called me an Oxford Inn and said, this man has bought you two and your baby. We'll keep the other three. Go get your things. That's what, I, what I think of that trauma of being separated, of being sold, of not having any say over your future, over your children's future, of being completely helpless. And that's what we're finding in some of these stories as we, as we look into these stories. Some of them 
I find this story just unbelievably painful. That it starts with this true love story mm -hmm. and ends with their being sold away. Nobody knows they're out of town. They're not in the records of uh, of old Lyme anymore. Where what happened to them then? No. Thank I God just want to you. mention there's yeah. there's so many stories like that of so many slaves throughout New England, so many places throughout New England that slaves were or ran to that right now no black people live in or have property in, right? We're not there. And the, and the black people that are within, the African-American people that are grew up here in, in New England in Connecticut don't even know or realize. So this project that you're working on with with uh, Kate Russian and Antoinette Bell and the other, uh, sorry, the other woman Award. is so very, very important overall. It's just very important for to maintaining the legacy and people realizing I, in my lifetime, you know, if you travel outside of Connecticut, sometimes they're like, oh, so there are black people in Connecticut? It's like, yes, mm. we're, we're, there are people that were born and raised here, but there are, and then there are folks that go up to Yukon and I, I have some friends that are working there now that say some of those, those people that, African-American kids that go there are still suffering through some racist stuff, like the N-word on their wall and and the struggles. And, and a lot of this land was farmed by us and owned by us. So these stories are so key. You are so valuable and we are so grateful. I, I know PGR is grateful, <laughs> my PGR partners. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it's people get ready for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> getting ready to help amplify the stories, Marilyn, that you are working with your colleagues to uncover and lay bare for all of us to learn from. And so we're just like so happy to play a very small role in that. And thank you. You know, thank you so much for joining us and letting us celebrate. <laughs> With you. Thank you for celebrating with me. Thank you <laughs> this beautiful much. new book. And thank and you for caring it. about us. You know, we feel that truly. We do. we do. We do. Well, I am so grateful for the to have this platform and uh, through Baobab Tree Studios, Rev Kev in the background, <laughs> <laughs> and and my Elm City Lit Fest team, as well as Just Us Books team, like. We, the, it is important for all of the information to get out as much as possible, and it cannot work without the teamwork. Mm -hmm. There are, there will be some signed copies at PGR, or there's a signed copy at PGR. Oh no, there's a big stack. That, okay. <laughs> that Marilyn signed for us herself. No, no yeah. book plates even. The real, the real hand of the author and poet and, and as I like to say, like literary legend among us. And there could be more signed <laughs> Hey, so we wanna thank you. We're gonna close this evening. We're thank so, again, you. so appreciative. This has been another um, uh, episode of Elm City Lit Fest podcast. It's a special episode, it's very special. We want everyone to go to people, get ready and get uh, Papa's free day <laughs> party. And we also want you to get Marilyn's other books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All of them. You a, missing, a whole book on y'all. You have the collection. You need it. <laughs> they have the collection. She wrote a whole yeah. book on Emmett Till. Okay. <laughs> and Marilyn, it couldn't have been more perfect, the poem that you recited. And I couldn't think of a better way to process the verdict of this evening than to be with you and to and to talk through such an amazing story. So 
Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're gonna say good night, everyone. And thank you for joining us on Facebook, everybody. Yes. Blessings. Blessings. Stay safe and well. Thank you.